very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material going back all the way to 2008, hundreds of hours of important truth just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Is the story of humanity far older and richer than the institutions of society have led us to believe? Tonight, we present a compelling and thought-provoking case using archaeoastronomy, religious stories, ancient artifacts, and our modern understanding of human evolution to suggest that it is. Let's take a unique and fascinating journey into the almost forgotten story that is told through the ancient unhidden symbols that surround us today. Tonight, we discuss the forbidden knowledge of Enoch with our special guest, R.J. Von Bruning, a new author and amateur astronomer with an extensive technical background in the electrical industry. R.J. has spent most of his life quietly researching the occult, secret societies, conspiracy theories, and the strange world of the paranormal. And directly from the state of Montana, I would like to welcome R.J. Von Bruning. Hello, R.J., and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me here, and I'm doing great. Uh, happy to be here. Looking forward to the show. I am, too. I am, too. This is a very deep, deep book. I uh, read it in the last couple of days, and I'm hoping to sit back and be educated because there's a lot of, a lot of dots you connected. But first, R.J., what brought you? to this research? The truth is, is I've always been interested in it. Um, I grew up in southeastern Arizona with big, huge, nice, dark skies and tons of Indian lore and where? ruins. I'm just curious, because uh, I'm in I southeast Arizona. In the, I, I grew up in uh, Benson, Arizona. I know Benson, sure. Yeah, just 45 miles southeast of Tucson. And... Uh, my, I come from a family that's a big scouting family, so I was really encouraged to do a lot of hiking and exploring and just learn to love the culture and the Indian cultures and the Mexican cultures and the Aztecs, and it was just always so fascinating. And living around it and being around it just made me ask questions, always, and I couldn't always get the answers. <laughs> And that kind of started the path. And then for this book, particularly, which is kind of a 
little personal love of my own is I've always been fascinated by secret societies because I come from a Masonic family, but I've always been kind of kept out of the loop. So that's always been a big fascination of what the rest of my family is kind of up to and why they wouldn't tell me. Why? Well, first question, why were you kept out of the loop if you have been seeking answers? You know, I really don't know. Um, there was a big falling out in my family around the time I was born. I was never told exactly what happened. And I think it had something to do with it. But over the last few years, I've been running into other guys that are in a similar situation like me where they come from a Masonic family. They, they were always told about it. But at the same time, they were never encouraged to go into it. They, they were always kind of kept at arm's length. So I don't think I'm unique in this aspect. That's very but, interesting because you would think that if you have somebody in your family, you know, perhaps what was it your father? Uh, actually... On both sides of my family, up until, until my father, almost every single individual in my family has been involved one way or the other, either with the Masons or their subsidiary organizations or, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just within the esoteric belief system itself. They've always kind of had their fingers in it. <laughs> Very interesting. Why didn't you try going through a third party to join them. Well, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. If I, because obviously this is more of an, an initiation process. And if you had some people within your own bloodline, you would think that would be easier to join. And I know folks, a lot of them are demonized, but we're talking about the upper echelon. But a lot of the Masons that I know are simple, nice people who just want to learn some truths. Am I right? Yes, basically. Uh, in fact, I would argue that the only certain branches of masonry have been kind of demonized or I, I would say corrupted uh, because masonry is kind of America. A lot of our ideas of liberty and equality, the rule of law, these ideas all come from masonry. They come from the Enlightenment, and that's basically how they were brought here to the States and were a major motivation for this country. So masonry has a lot of really positive aspects, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it is and exactly how it operates. And in many ways, the Masons kind of help encourage some of this too to help keep their secrets and like you said, for the initiations and stuff, because it is a brotherhood. It, it is secret knowledge for the few or the initiated. And that's the whole basis of it, basically. And like many of our listeners and I, RJ, you've always had the nagging feeling and, and thought that something about the world wasn't quite right. I think we all, anybody who listens to this show that came all the way to, to listen to us and even me creating this show is because we have that nagging effect of not knowing, even though you, you have never known exactly what that something was. Have you found that something? That's true. I've always had that same feeling that just something in the world isn't quite right, that you can't really put your finger on it, but all the pieces just don't seem to fit. The stories you're told, you know, the history we're presented, it, it just doesn't quite fit. You know, it's a good story, but my gut tells me there's something wrong with it. <laughs> and you talk about the lack of a quote unquote unifying factor 
What is that factor? And is this what perpetuates the divide and conquer the powers that want to be one present everywhere? It could be. I think it is. Uh, the unifying factor, <clears throat> excuse me again, is a story. And that's kind of one of the big pieces about this entire idea and what's presented in my book is the piece that's missing for everybody is that it's a religion and you can't understand a religion until you understand its basic core story. And that is basically what I stumbled upon. And obviously there are questions that are primordial. We've heard about me saying here, who are we, where we come from, where are we going? Nobody has the answers, or at least to my satisfaction. But you have six questions. What are the six questions that need to be answered answered in order to find the truth about the forbidden knowledge? Well, in my book, the six questions that you're speaking of, um, I use those to begin a thought experiment because that's how I present this information because there is just so much and it connects in with so many different pieces that I thought the best way to present it was just, like I said, as a thought experiment. So I start this with basically six questions. Is The first one being, is there really anything to the whole ancient astronaut theory as it's currently presented on TV or in the popular media? The second question was, are the ancient religious stories that we all have and are so familiar with really talking about some type of advanced extraterrestrial civilization that came here thousands of years ago. Third question was, were our ancestors too primitive to understand who these individuals were and misinterpreted them as gods? Four, is this is where all the ancient stories, legends, and myths possibly come from? The fifth question was, has modern science misinterpreted the evidence? And six, is there evidence to support any side of this argument? And those are the basic questions I started with to start building the idea. And the idea has to basically start within the ancient astronaut theory as most people know it, and then slowly starts moving out from there. <clears throat> you say you may have found a pathway through the confusion between science, religion, and the ancient astronaut supporters. Before you explain, let me just say this about the ancient astronaut. I used to be one that would think that because we don't know how to build the pyramid today, just to make it in very simple terms, that perhaps it must have been an extraterrestrial race that came here and did that. But the more I have looked into ancient history and speaking to other tribes like the Dogon tribe and speaking to some of the, the initiates there, I've come to a different conclusion that just because we cannot understand how a megalithic monument was made thousands of years ago, today in the 21st century, even with the best of our, of our technology, we don't have to be pointing the finger at our sky saying, oh, they must have come from elsewhere. If we die today, a cataclysm comes along, and 100 years on the road, the remnants of the human race start digging a few feet underground and they find a few iPhones and plastics and computers. They ha they'll have no idea if the knowledge was lost that we actually made it. 
What would they do? Oh, this must have been made by gods or by extraterrestrials. My point is, why do we take away credit from the civilization, whether it was human or a different type of human thousands of years ago? Why do we have to always say it must have been ancient astronauts or ancient aliens? I have to agree with you. Uh, I've very I've wondered the same question myself. Why do people always invoke ancient astronauts or an extraterrestrial or something otherworldly? Uh, in fact, I think the logic kind of points to that it could have been an advanced civilization of ourselves or our immediate ancestors, or that Earth has gone through a series of where it's created life, civilizations have flourished, and then they destroyed themselves and disappeared. And that's one of the key points within the esoteric belief system is when you get up at the higher levels, you start realizing that part of the idea is that there was a prior civilization on this planet. And they basically view it as it, as it being two-tiered. One part was very highly advanced, probably more advanced than we are today, and one part that was very primitive. They never, ever really go into and say this is aliens or anything. They kind of lean toward the idea that these beings may be originally from Earth and not from another solar system, which that idea has kind of been gaining a little bit of traction of late within some of the more paranormal and UFO circles that maybe we're, we've been looking at this idea wrong. Well, I'm glad that finally some people are I'm not saying awakening because we don't have proof either way, but at least consider the fact that we may have been able to do that. And when we look at, and you discuss this in your book, DNA, perhaps our DNA was tinkered. In the past, you even say it too. During In the Bible, they talk about our lifespan being, what was it? Uh, I have it right here. Lifespan being, uh, you know, 300 to 900 years. What happened later? Did somebody come along and tinkered with our DNA because they didn't want us to really become enlightened? Because imagine if you and I were to live to be, say, 500, just to not, not to go too exaggerated, 500. When we're 100, we start realizing, wait a second, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm starting to get it. And then the next 100 years, you become more enlightened and so on and so forth. We would not be having the case of wars that we have. We would have conquered disease. We would have conquered poverty. We would be living in harmony with no wars, don't you think? I would agree. I think if our lifespans were longer, but if we're dealing with in the past, science has pretty much told us, and even the ancient stories kind of indicate that our ancestors seem to have been at a much more primitive level. So they may not have had the intellectual capability. And that's one of the ideas that I present forward in my book is that these ancient stories that we're dealing with are most likely dealing with Cro-Manglin man, our immediate ancestor. And some of these things may have been totally beyond their intellectual capability. Because what evidence we do have appears that they could put governments and structures together, but they don't seem to be able to understand higher technologies and things like that. And that has to make you wonder if they were kept that way, if somebody tinkered with our DNA 
And that also kind of why it ties kind of back with the ancient astronaut theory, because the idea was is that we might have been created as a slave race originally for somebody. But I'm a bit confused, because if you're saying that perhaps we, we were not as intellectual before, yet we have just pick one megalithic monument. Let's pick the, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Some people say that it's 10,000 years ago. Some say that's hundreds of thousands of years ago. But the, the common denominator is that we cannot come close to use the precision tools, technology that was used not only there, but then you come to Mesoamerica. If we were separate and the one who, who rediscovered America was Christopher Columbus and found all these pyramids over here, wasn't there a common denominator? Didn't we have the knowledge the knowledge shared around the world in order for them to build some, more or less, they're not equal, but they're very similar in their architecture, the pyramids. I think so. And I lean toward the idea that I think this is evidence pointing toward that there was at least a worldwide civilization on this planet that was in contact. Because like you said, the architecture is similar, the, the monolithic building, the ideas, the symbols. how they seem to be all around the planet. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that goes against modern thinking because we're all taught that, no, these cultures were not in contact with each other. They, they, there was no way they could. But if their level of technology was just a little bit higher, like most people are, like many people argue, then they could be. And there's all these tantalizing little pieces of evidence. The thing that I find interesting, especially with the monolithic building and stuff, is the fact that we do not build like that. This is clearly a distinct style. We don't go moving 100 tons stones around today unless we absolutely totally have to. But the ancients seem to have done it on a regular basis. And with my experience in the electrical industry, moving large masses is not easy. Uh, even today, even with cranes and hundreds of men and hydraulics, it is still very difficult to move multi-ton equipment and solid masses so there's some type of indication that there's more advanced technology there whether it was influenced by ancient aliens or if it was just our immediate ancestors that were broken up a little bit more i think is open for debate but i think that there is clear evidence around that these cultures had to be in contact with each other because in addition to the architecture the stories themselves are all similar not only, that, seems not only that, but if you look at the ley lines, you, you, you'll see that a lot of these monuments are placed in strategic places. So they must have known, first of all, knowing where the energy lines of the earth were. Take uh, uh, Easter Island, 1,289 miles away from the closest piece of, of land. How did they put those Moai there? So when you say that they were not as intellectual, I say today we are not as intellectual as they were. Because look, we have how many languages, how many religions do we have? Over 4,000 religions. We're always, I don't know if it's ego, that everybody says, you know, my God is better than yours. My knowledge is better than yours. My language is better than yours. And we keep this separation throughout the world. And what I think is what you said, that at one point our our planet was completely united yeah and the ancient stories tell us too i mean one of the most famous stories in the bible of uh, speaking of the tower of babel 
We were told that we all spoke one language. And this terrified the gods because when we worked as one, we could become like them. Precisely. And that is such an intriguing little tidbit out of the Bible to go, why would the gods be scared of humans all working together, all getting along, all speaking, and that we could become like them? In fact, it scared them so much, the story tells us that they scattered us and changed our language and started this conflict among ourselves. So we don't do that. So, so glad that we're discussing this because this is one of mo the most nagging questions that I've always had. Why is it that we have so many languages? And even a few years ago, you may remember there was this big force out there that wanted to create Esperanto as the, the one language for the planet. Remember that? Yes, I do. And it went nowhere because I think it scares, it scares the uh, powers that want to be. Because imagine if we're always here fighting with each other and not understanding what the Chinese are saying, not understanding what the Russians are saying. There's this separation. But if all of a sudden language unites us, we'll come to the realization. And, and people who travel, and I've traveled around the world and I found this for myself. I used to have these preconceived notions going to... Southeast Asia to, to Islamic countries and thinking, oh, geez, I'm going to be, you know, killed by a terrorist. Or, but, but, but when you get there and you realize the media has been feeding all this BS, these people think like me. You know, we have differences, yes. But at the end of the day, we can sit down, have a, a cup of tea and talk about so many topics and they don't want that. Yeah, I would have to agree. And it's used as a wedge to keep us separated. And that's one of the keys of to the esoteric religion because it's kept secret. I, I, I think just the idea of the esoteric religion in itself kind of helps foster this because it automatically has a separation. You know, they're separate. They know something special or secret than everybody else. So that causes resentments and conflicts and questions and doubt, and it feeds upon itself. And if you're smart enough to realize all this, you can take advantage of it. And I think that's what's been happening for a number of decades, if not centuries. And by the way, I don't want people to think that just because I went to, say, Indonesia, I agree with some of the extremes. Of course, I, I do not. I don't agree with any religion or belief or, or what have you that mistreats women the way they do uh, or people the way they do. So... Just wanted to make that clear. But again, you say that you may have found a pathway through the confusion between science, religion, and the ancient astronaut supporters. Please explain. The key point is the esoteric belief system. Um, this is a religion that most people are totally unaware of or only view it as being occultic or demonic or some type of Satan worship. Um, that's really kind of been done by the churches over the last 1,500 years because the esoteric is essentially the direct competitor. When we read our ancient our history books and learn about the early church going after mystery religions, which Christianity was one at one time, and about 1,500 years ago, they started stomping out all the other competing mystery religions. The Gnostics are one of the most famous ones that mm -hmm. people still remember today. Uh, Mithros, of, if you're a Roman historian, are probably familiar with that one, and maybe even Krishna a little bit. But there, were, there was actually 
about 16 or 17 of these other religions running around that we know of, and most likely more. And as the church started stomping these out, they forced them underground. And these old mystery religions basically become the core of what we call the esoteric today. Uh, the most famous, like we were talking earlier, is the Masons, but they're not the only ones, and they're not the oldest. And their basic key story, their Jesus story that their belief is built upon, is the secret of tying all this together. And that is found within the ancient book of Enoch, very close to the end of the book of Enoch, in what is a section known as the dream vision. And the dream vision of Enoch is a very, very unique story. <clears throat> in fact, I was floored the first time I read it and really didn't even grasp what I had read. It is an allegorical or symbolic retelling of the biblical story that uses animals to describe people and men to represent angels. And it sounds a little crazy at first, and even when you read it the first time through, it seems very odd, just kind of from left field. But this story's the secret. It's the story that unlocks the symbolism, which then unlocks the allegory, which unlocks the hidden story that we read in our Bibles and many of these ancient stories, and also gives the meaning to the symbols that we see around us today. That's the secret, the dream vision. Now, going back to, to the ancient astronauts or extraterrestrials, ancient aliens, what evidence, if any, do we have to say that these beings were extraterrestrial? There's very little to say that they are, but within the stories, and one of the key points that I focus on is in the ancient stories, we're always told about a heaven or Asgard, or Olympus, someplace that was this home of the gods. The host of heaven lived in this place. And people have wondered for years and years and years what it is. Within the dream vision, using that to help unlock the rest of the story, you start realizing that this was most likely an actual ship that was in low Earth orbit that basically looked like a giant eyeball to anybody on the ground. So this thing was massive. And at first that sounds incredibly crazy, and you're like, there's no evidence to support that. But actually when you get close to the end of the story, you start discovering that there's probably evidence to support this thing, and that it may be the reason that there was a great destruction on this planet approximately 12 to 13,000 years ago. And that's the wild part about the esoteric. As the symbolism starts unlocking, the story starts falling into place. Whether or not it was actually a civil, aliens from another planet or whether a very advanced civilization here, like I said before, is open to debate. I, I kind of lean toward the idea that the esoterics kind of put forward is that there was a civilization that originated on this planet and then they left earth they abandoned earth millennium millions of years ago and then eventually returned so that these beings aren't really aliens but they are advanced but they're originally here from earth 
Do you think and, that the DNA was tinkered and this is why the majority of our DNA is considered junk for that reason? I think so. Uh, because as you go through within the esoteric story, there seems to be a lot of indications that we were tinkered with. You, you hear stories of them creating other beings. Um, one of the ones I really focus on is the creation of Jacob and his brother Ishu, which is the biblical story of, of uh, Abraham. And once you can unlock the symbolism, you can start realizing that this could be describing the Andertal man, the first man, being changed into Cro-Manglin man. And we have the story within the Bible and that this might fit in with the fossil evidence and other finds that we have. And that's where it starts getting really crazy because when you take the dream vision and you stretch it out, and lay it over the last approximately 200,000 years of human evolution that we know of, the story seems to fit. That things that we don't think are related, like Jacob being born, may be describing Cro-Manglin man 39,000 years ago. And that's where it starts getting confusing because you have to kind of take a step-by-step -step process from just kind of like the biblical text, you have to start in the beginning with the creation and move through just like you would any other history. The big problem is, is most of this has been hidden from people or it's been just stomped out uh, because it was a competition. Well, when we think of the Smithsonian, for example, there's information out there saying that in the early part of last century, they discarded a lot of evidence and even skeletons of giants that roamed the earth and they keep appearing. Even I, I say this all the time, a few years ago when there was an earthquake in Iran, one of our listeners, his father lives in Iran and he sent me pictures of some of these giants in, in this place. They happen to have been women over nine feet tall. Why is it that they don't want us to know that giants walk the earth? What is so difficult? and so uh, compromising to them that these beings existed at one point? I think I'm leaning toward the idea that it's a threat to the current status quo, to the power structure itself. Because basically for the last couple of thousand years, we've been being told we're it. We're the pinnacle. There's nothing else. Uh, there was nobody before us. We're it. And that has been drilled into people's heads. And if you find nine-foot tall remains all over the planet, like the rumors and it seems to be, then all of a sudden the religion that's supposed to be myth starts becoming fact, starts becoming history. It starts putting weight behind it. And... That, I think, is kind of just a threat to their power in general. I mean, whether it's the Catholic Church, whether it's the esoterics, or whether it's a government, that as soon as people realize that they haven't been getting the real story, that information has been being suppressed, it's a threat. It, it could change society. It could take the status quo out of power. I think the Vatican should allow people like you and I to, to allow to go to the catacombs and just, hey, 
open anything you want. Just take a look. Oh, Bring I anybody would you love want. That. <laughs> Bring some language experts around the world with you and just take a look. There's nothing to hide. But why is it that they keep that in hide, you know, hiding? But this conversation, speaking of um, myths, brings me back to my conversation with Michael Tellinger years ago when he told me that today we think of the word myth as fiction. When in fact it was considered an affidavit signed by priests and kings. So when we think of Greek mythology, for example, and the gods like Zeus, Kronos, Titan, and the rest of them, do you think they may have existed? Yes. And this is one of the big keys for the esoteric. In many ways, these ancient stories are symbolic stories. Um, a good example, one I've been using of late, is within the dream vision begins with the Adam and Eve story, Cain and Abel story that everybody's very familiar with. But instead of talking of human beings, Enoch talks about seeing bowls come from forth from the earth. And within the dream vision, you start realizing and understanding that the bowl or oxen becomes a representation or a symbol for the first men. So when with that little tidbit of information, when you go to Greek mythology where Zeus comes down and changes himself into a bull to seduce some young maiden, that story changes from an esoteric viewpoint because he's not changing into a bull as a physical animal, but would be changing into one of the first men to seduce the woman. So the story changes a little, it stays the same, but changes. And this is where it gets important for the symbolism, because this also relates back over into the biblical texts, like uh, using the uh, Exodus story as an example. When the Israelites forced Aaron to create the golden calf and they worshipped it, God and Moses unleashed their wrath and many are killed. But the story doesn't really tell you why they were so angry, so wrathful. Within the esoteric, you understand that the first men represented by the bull were also the ones that were corrupted by the angel that fell. So by the Israelites building an effigy to a golden calf was an effigy to the first men who fell from grace, who were a direct enemy to God and Moses. And it changes the story, but it still stays the same. And that's really kind of the secret within all of this. The symbolism and the allegory is how you unlock the story. And that's how you tie history, religion, and science starts coming together. The symbols and the allegory are the key, and that's what is being hidden within the mystery schools. So who are, or actually where, the gods that came to Earth? Could you expand on that a little? Well... We talk about the gods, the lesser gods, the higher gods, the the, the main group. Oh, in the very beginning of the book. Exactly. I'm basically using the same structure as very popular within the Judeo-Christian tradition and within the ancient astronaut tradition where you had higher gods, where you would have like a governmental body, and then you had lesser gods, which seemed to be kind of more like a, an administrative section and then you have the lower gods which are typically the messengers and the ones that interacted with humanity and came to earth and i start 
that just for the general idea to get everybody on the same page to start moving in to the dream vision and symbolism because you kind of have to have a few ideas with on your mind before you can go into it. it it's, it's, it's really kind of hard to put into words because the symbols are about allegories. They're about things that mean things that aren't really put into words or written down on a regular basis. And this is one of the ways the story's hidden from everybody. But it's a nice way to ease into the dream vision so everybody doesn't get lost <laughs> in the process. Because once you hit the dream vision and the symbolism, it kind of takes off like a roller coaster and it's easy to get lost because a lot of this, I was not able to use a bunch of mental shortcuts. I, I have to spend the time to actually explain things out and kind of leave them hanging and have to come back to them, <laughs> which I think has made it hard for some people to grasp exactly how this idea comes together. What about the hierarchy? You briefly discussed that there were the ruling gods or higher gods and there were the minor gods. What were the differences? The main differences seem to be political. Um, and that's kind of the way it has to be looked at um, to kind of pull it out of the mythology. We seem to have an actual structure told to us that there's this administrative section that is much like a presidency or a government of today dictating the orders. Uh, the people don't ever really see them. And then, like I said, below that, an administrative arm. And then underneath that, more of a, the messengers. Exactly who they were is kind of hard to say. Enoch in within the ancient Texas just describes them typically as looking as white men. Um, and that's been debated for centuries exactly what that means. But the idea is that they looked something like us or we look like them if they actually did tinker with our DNA. And once they get established, the ancient stories tell us that at some point there is a war of the gods. And without, and when this war is done and over with, out of it comes the creation of the first men to basically be slaves for these gods. Like I said, it's, it's hard to, you know, you kind of have to make up your own personal mind exactly who these beings are. I personally try to keep in mind that they're just highly advanced and that they could possibly be here from Earth. Uh, they may not be. So until we can get some more information, it's, I think it's open to debate. But the esoterics do lean toward the idea that these were actual flesh and blood beings. They never really go into exactly who they were or where they came from, but their influence is undeniable. Think of this for a moment. You have all this talk right now that we're going to be going to Mars, right? Right. So let's say we decided, not with this current scenario, but we decided to put their a man and a woman, okay? Put man and a woman there, yeah, you know, since they were children. And then they have people that don't talk to them at all. There's no commu verbal communication. And then those people reproduce, and, you know, that's how things start. And then all of a sudden, that man is called Adam. That person is, the, the woman is called Eve. They don't know anything because we were, didn't tell them anything. 
But then all of a sudden, the people who put him there arrive one day, and they are considered gods. Why couldn't that have been the same here? And, and later, I want to discuss this because what puzzles me is the classifications of Caucasian, Mongoloid, Negroid. You can add the Australoid to that, but we'll leave that for later. I just wanted to make that comment. But again, going back to the ancient astronaut theory for a moment, do you find that the proponents of the ancient astronaut or ancient alien theory are all over the place and there's no consistent timeline? That's one of the big things. Uh, that's one of my big problems I've always had with this idea. And in all my schooling and training, you have to have a timeline of events to be able to do anything. Whether you want to build a car or a house or you want to figure out history, you have to have a timeline. And most of the ancient astronaut theorists are all over the board. Um, that's where the dream vision helps to come back in. Like I said, once you stretch it out and put it over human evolution, that looks, it fits, and that gives you a generic timeline to start working within, with establishing that the first men were most likely the ones we call Neanderthal. And I tell you in my book, I leave that open, that it may not be Neanderthal, but he's what's in the fossil record. He's what we know about and that he showed up on the scene approximately 200,000 years ago. So we have a beginning point. And this also seems to fit with the new idea, well, it's not really too new of an idea now, of the mitochondrial Eve, that all humans are all from one very small genetic group that existed on this planet two to 300,000 years ago. And that the stories talk about this too. So there seems to be a con where these ideas start coming together. And the key with the esoterics is, is they don't discount this stuff. They actually view it as a possibility. And the biggest thing is, like I said, it fits and establishes a new timeline. The next big point within using the biblical text in the dream vision is the flood. That's remembered globally. And the esoterics, and I do too agree with them, and there's been other people that have proposed this before, that the Toba super eruption of approximately 72,000 years ago could be the same event that's recorded in the traditions as the flood. And this also fits to the stories tell us that humanity bottlenecked, and we know genetically humanity bottlenecked at that time. So there's these intriguing little pieces and clues that the stories are much older than anybody has ever really imagined. And that's one of the little secrets for the esoteric and another kind of getting back to why it's a threat. It presents a different history, an older history, which raises a lot more questions. And a lot of these questions that it raises the authorities, the churches and stuff, they really don't want to answer them. And that's kind of one of the reasons why the Book of Enoch was originally removed from the canon is because of things like the flood. Uh, they believed it gave too much detail about Noah and what he was thinking and what was going on at the time. Uh, they liked a nice little compact story where people wouldn't ask questions. You know, when I think of the Bible, it's composed of how many books? 66 books? 
People think it's just one book and it's 66. And I've always wondered that. Why did the Book of Enoch, why was it removed from it? And again, I think it all falls in the same place. The cultural editors, the winners who rewrite history, they don't want us to go back in time too long. And that's why I think, what is it, 10,000 years? We don't know anything in the history books. When you go to school, when you go to college, even at a, at a doctorate degree, there's nothing bef- beyond 10,000 years. And we have to step outside the box and look, what do you think that is? It's a threat. And that's basically what it keeps coming back to. Uh, why was the Book of Enoch removed? You can actually go back and read the writings from the fathers of the church in 364 AD. Tells and they tell you. Uh, actually, uh, Laodicea. Was okay. that council was the one that removed the Book of Enoch? Uh, actually, removed a number of other books too. But the council did give a reason why they removed it. The first reason was just because it gave way too much information about the fall of the angels and too much information about Noah. It raised uncomfortable questions that they didn't want to deal with. The other one is probably the more important one that people can kind of relate to is because of the way the Book of Enoch is written and a number of other pseudo-acropical texts is it's written in the first person. And in the case of Enoch, he describes having a personal one-on-one relationship with God and the angels that he went. And, you know, in fact, one part in the Book of Enoch, he describes where he's standing in front of God on his throne while God is instructing the angels to teach him how to write and become a scribe. That's a very Gnostic idea. The Catholic Church's whole stick is that you have to go through the church to have a relationship with God. The Gnostics and have a different idea that you don't need the church. You can have a personal relationship. And they would point at Enoch, as an example, to go, Enoch walked with God, it even says in the Bible, and God came and took him, and that he had a personal one-on-one relationship. And that is, in many ways today, kind of seems kind of dated, but it is a big threat to the Catholic Church and always has been. Even after it, it fragmented in the Reformation, people still have that idea that you have to have a priest, you have to have a rabbi, and Enoch's book, gives you a basically a totally different idea. You know, lately I've been studying the and comparing Christianity with Egyptian uh, history. And it was, you know who Dolores Cannon was, right? Yes. When she told me last time we spoke that she went to the Vatican and, and a tour guide who usually doesn't take people to certain areas of the Vatican took her to certain areas where it was predominantly a lot of Egyptian art, you know, artifacts there. She said, you know, what does it have to do with Christianity? And the tour guide said, oh, you don't know? Everything we talk about here is based on Egyptian history and mythology. And the reason for that is because we can't just tell the people. And I'm, I'm looking at a document while we're speaking here, and there's dozens and dozens, for example, just we mentioned of you, Conception. Horus by a virgin, Jeshua of Nazareth, uh, Jesus by a virgin, Father only begotten Son of the God of Cyrus, only and then Jeshua only begotten Son of Jehovah, and you keep going and going, Mother Mary, Mary M E R I, 
They're Miriam, also known as Mary. And you keep going, and there are dozens and dozens of of, of things that are similar. Temptation, uh, raising of the dead, uh, baptize, uh, age at baptism 30, age at baptism for Jesus 30. It's unavoidable to to have those questions. I wonder if you were to go to the current Pope, who seems to be a little more open-minded, and ask him about all these questions, what he would answer. What, what do you think? That would be interesting to ask Pope Francis that, uh, because he has been so much open, more open than any other Pope of of recent memory. And I agree with you. There are, uh, within the esoteric themselves, they acknowledge that there are 15 other individuals besides Jesus that fit that trademark. And they stretch over about a 1200 year period. Um, and that's kind of one of the other things too, to kind of point out to go, the church kind of basically pushed all the other saviors out of the way. And we are just left with, knowing about Jesus Christ today. Uh, but there were many others, and the teachings were exactly the same. The way they lived, the way they died, what they preached, everything is almost exactly the same. And they're separated by centuries and thousands of miles. Um, one of the things that really get me and what the esoterics use as kind of a guideline is the saviors that were crucified like Christ was, and that when you go through, there's a long list of them. And that's the other thing, because that raises more questions. Well, how come Krishna and Jesus and Mithros were all talking about the exact same thing? Why were they all called the Son of God? Why did they all call God their Father? Why did they all preach the exact same message? And that is one of those little tidbits they like to hide. They, they don't want to tell the people that. And in many ways over the centuries, the church has just basically argued that the people weren't ready for it. And I think that's also the argument kind of put forward by the esoterics because they like hiding this too. Um, they do not believe the average person is ready for it, that they'll misinterpret it, that they, they won't understand it, or they'll just not treat it with the respect that they believe it needs. It's a complex. It is. It is complex, but at the same time, it makes you wonder, if we had all this coming from Egypt, why couldn't they just perpetuate this? I mean, during the Roman Empire, they could have said, you know what, let's just, if we we need to create something in order to pacify the masses at the places where we cannot have so many soldiers present, and no offense to anybody who's a believer here, but sometimes you have to step outside the bucket, but uh, start the box and stop believing and start knowing. And I'm looking at, at all these things that I'm reading here. Main role for both: Savior of humanity, status, God, man for both. Common portrayal: Virgin Isis holding the infant Horus, Virgin Mary holding the infant Jesus. Title for Horus: KRST, the Anointed One, and for Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Other names, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, the Son of Man, the Word, the Fisher, the Windknower, exactly for Jesus. Zodiac sign for both, associated with Pisces and the fish. And the main symbols, fish, beetle, divine, shepherd's crook, exactly for both. And I could spend two hours giving you more commonalities. And I think that's a good indication to show that these are connected. They have to be. 
even if they're just casually connected of where there was just one individual and the idea connected got or plagiarized. That's a good question. I agree, kind of agree with the esoterics that they're connected, that this is, these are different individuals moving through time with the same message. And the esoterics do believe and lean toward the idea that these individuals were sent, that these people were a little bit different than us, that they were sent to educate us, to teach us. And one of the reasons that this was being done, according to the esoterics, was because of, like I mentioned before, that a great destruction was coming. And that great destruction was because of this massive ship in orbit was going to crash to Earth, which sounds a little crazy, like I said before, but it fits because we do know that approximately 12 to 13,000 years ago, something catastrophic happened on this planet. Human cultures were wiped out. Animals was, went extinct. And the Ice Age basically returned for 1,500 years. And the big question has always been why. And that's one of the crutches of Christianity and what the esoterics is and maybe why they hide all this. Because if you knew the end of days Armageddon that we've all been taught had already happened, then they don't really have anything to scare you with. They don't have anything to use as fear. And then again, that raises more questions of going, well, why did it happen? How did it happen? When did it happen? And that, I think, is why the esoteric is really kind of such a threat to especially the Catholic Church, is because they basically argue that the Bible isn't prophecy. It's history. In fact, it's ancient history. And so you get a, basically two totally different ideological viewpoints of the same subject bashing heads. The esoterics stay hidden because up until very recently, you would get burned at the stake for just discussing this or even proposing it, much less actually going out and disseminating it to the people. Well, they, they're not burned at the stake right now, but they are shunned by many. And yes. in a way, it's almost like being burned at the stake. If you have a difference of opinion that the majority of the population does not share. And this is why I'm so glad to have this platform in order for me to be able to vent all of this. Because if I did that during my, you know, with my peers or my social circles, I would have no friends and no family. So, you know, I go back to my time in parochial school. I remember when they were talking about the flood and Noah and the ark and, and you know, having all the, every single species of animal going to that ark. I was thinking, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, and I'm thinking, how big was that ark in order to fit all the individual species. Even today, we can't replicate that. I mean, we have that, that uh, seed vault in Norway, but that's only putting the seeds. What about the animals? And then if they all became extinct, you know, we have plenty of animals right now. Where did they come from? You know, to, to me, question for you, Noah and the ark, in your opinion, truth or fiction? I think... It is truth mixed with fiction. And that's one of the differences within the book of Enoch when it comes to Noah, especially within the dream vision. He gives a different description of the animals 
being placed on the ark. And that's another little key point of understanding the dream vision. The dream vision uses animals to represent people. And using the dream vision as an outline and realizing that the Bible helps fill in some of the details, you realize that there's a misconception there that they're not saving animals, as in dogs and cats and cattle. They're saving peoples that are represented by the animals. And within the dream vision, this is where it gets unique. The dream vision only specifically states that there was a very small number of individuals on this ark that saved the last little remnant of humanity, that there was Noah and his family, and then that there was three additional bowls put onto the ark, uh, which were representing for the symbolically first men. And then once the flood is over, the dream vision tells us that Noah gets off and he becomes like an angel. He transforms into a man, which is represented as an angel for the dream vision. And that the three bowls, when they come out, one is black, one is white, and one is red. And that's where it starts getting a little interesting because even within the beginning of the dream vision, there is a distinction of white, black, and red. Hold it right there because we have to separate both segments. And I think this is exactly where I wanted to end this segment. This is, again, one of those questions that I had as a child when they were talking about Adam and Eve and the rib. And I used to look around me as a child and I used to see black people, Asians. I used to see, uh, you know, all these. Uh, you mentioned Adam and Eve and the racial classification of Caucasian, Mongoloid, and Negroid. And let's not forget Australoid too. And this is one of the parts no one has been able to explain to my satisfaction. If we all come from Adam and Eve, how do we have three or four types of racial groups? And people who write to me say, Mel, there's no other race than human. I get that. But you know what I mean with this. So let's take this when we come back. How can people buy your book, RJ, and learn more about your work? Uh, it's currently available on Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble, and most all book retailers that are online. Uh, and it can be ordered directly from the publisher, Tate Publishing at TatePublishing.com. The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch, authored by RJ Von Bruning, our special guest tonight. Folks, don't go anywhere. Much more to discuss when we come back. We want to know, is the story of humanity far older and richer than institutions of society have led us to believe? And I think the answer is yes. Let's dissect this more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, Go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.
Leila, Leila. 